Let's turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 4. We're journeying through the book of Acts to answer the question, what might it look like to be the church in a broken world? And if you're new to our services, Calvary Chapel, we're known for teaching through the Bible, and the goal is to simply teach the Bible simply. And today we find ourselves in Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 37. And just a warning, we're going to be going all around Scripture to find our cross-references and see how these things apply to our life. So it's good for you to get familiar with the Scriptures. And so I'll give you time to flip through the different verses and things like that, because I want you guys to know the Word of God. And the Lord's heart is for you to know His Word as well. So we're going to give adequate time today in our Bible study to get to those references, to read, to study, be encouraged together. And I hope that our time will be encouraging and challenging at the same time. A simple outline for today, we'll talk about uh, the characteristics of the early church. We're going to talk about characters of the early church, and then we'll close our time with some application and communion and prayer. Does that sound good? Okay, let's dive in here. Acts chapter 4, verses 32 and 37. Hopefully you're there. I'm reading from the New King James Version, and Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writes this. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each one as anyone had need. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet." Just another quick word of prayer. Father, here we are. We thank you for your word, your living word, that is able to read us. I pray, Lord, would you, by your spirit, zoom in on our hearts. Minister, heal, set free, anoint, challenge, and teach us, Lord, in this time. We ask for you to sanctify it for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray and we say, Amen. Okay, number one, characteristics of the early church. This is kind of going off of our series that we've already talked about, devoted to community. But the Holy Spirit, written, uh, so Luke, sorry, filled by the Holy Spirit, is inspired to write down further descriptions of the early church. We're going to look at number one. The early church was filled with one heart and one soul. They had one heart and one soul. Look with me again, verse 32. Now, the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. The question is, how big is this multitude? Let's go on a journey together to estimate and guesstimate how big the early church was at this point in Acts chapter 4. Would you turn with me to Acts chapter 2, verse 41? If the church here is of one heart and one soul, how many people are we talking about? Acts 2, 41, we'll start here. The word of God says, Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Okay? Now jump to Acts 2.47. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Okay, so 3,000 were saved, and now the Lord is adding daily. 
Acts 4.4, Acts 4.4. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. Okay, so Bible commentators go back and forth. Is this everybody, including men, women, and children? Some would say, yes, about 5,000 at this time. Others would say, that's just the men, not including the children and the wives. And so a safe estimate is around 8,000 to 10,000. Some commentators say it's up to 25,000 people at this point. But to be conservative, about 8,000 people. We're talking about the multitude, about 8,000 people. And the characteristic of the early church, number one, they were of one heart and one soul. The heart speaks of the inner self, where feelings, emotions, and thinking can occur. And the soul speaks of the entire inner person. This is, uh, if you're a fan of Anne of Green Gables, this is what it means to be a bosom friend, right? A bosom friend, right? Just like deep down right there, right? Being one with someone in heart and soul. It speaks of the entire person, the insides, the core of our being, 8,000 people estimated were of one heart and one soul. This is an example of having real fellowship. And I would venture out to say that their unity of one heart and soul was fruit of being filled with the Holy Spirit. It was fruit of their times in prayer and the word of God being spoken with boldness. Refer back with me to Acts 4.31. Right before our passage that we just read, Acts 4.31 says this, And when they, speaking of the church, had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. And so their unity of heart and soul was birthed out of their times of praying together, praying for one another, being filled with the Holy Spirit, and the word of God being spoken with boldness. I would also venture out to say that this unity of heart and soul is a direct connection of an answered prayer that Jesus prayed for all believers in John chapter 17. Let's turn to John chapter 17, the gospel of John chapter 17, because Jesus prayed for all believers to be united, not just the early church, not just the church down the street, but the big church, the big C church, that he would have all of us to be of one heart and one soul. John 17, 20 and 23. I'll give you 10 seconds more to turn there. Jesus prays before he is about to get unjustly crucified and betrayed by his friend. He writes this beautiful prayer in John chapter 17, the latter part of the prayer, verses 20 and 23. I do not pray for these alone but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they, may all, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me, and the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one And that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Jesus has this wonderful prayer that the church throughout all generations would be one with one another as he is one with the Father, this perfect unity. Now, I love praying to Jesus because he knows what we need. He is the answer to our prayers. But how about about us 
answering Jesus' prayer of pursuing unity with one another. Unity with, let's answer Jesus' prayer of unity within our families, our communities. Let's answer Jesus' prayer of being one with our church, but also the church down the street and the other church on the other side of town. What would it look like for us to answer Jesus' prayer of that perfect unity? I think it'd be a little slice of heaven. It'd be beautiful. Jesus prays that they would be one just as he is one with the Father. And so we see even in the early church, Acts chapter 4, an answer to Jesus' prayer. Again, this was birthed out of times of prayer with one another, being filled with the Holy Spirit and the Word of God going out. So what did their unity look like practically? Well, we just read it. They were sacrificially giving of their resources. Their unity of heart and soul was displayed in their actions of selflessness and sacrificial. Uh, yeah, selflessness and sacrificial giving. They weren't just saying, we are united, but they demonstrated that they were united through their actions. And I think they took their cues from Jesus, who didn't just say, I love you, but Paul writes in Romans 5.8 that God demonstrated his own love towards us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What did Jesus do while we were still sinners? He demonstrated his love by giving, sacrificially of himself on the cross, selflessly right on the cross. And so the early church is just taking Jesus' cues. They were sacrificially giving of the resources. This is a beautiful picture. This is a beautiful picture of God's love towards us. The agape love of God, which loves us without condition and without expecting anything in return. We see this in the early church. They were selling their properties, their houses, their proceeds, and bringing it to the apostles. And the apostles were sharing these things. They were united in everything. This is beautiful. And notice another testimony of the early church. There was, there was no lack or need unmet. I love that. What would it look like for us to have no lack or all of our needs met because the body is ministering to the body. And God does this today. God expects the body to bless the body, to minister to the body. And so when we're actively being a part of the body of Christ, we're not only being blessed, but being a blessing as well. Have you experienced this as a receiver of a blessing from the body of Christ? It's beautiful. Have you been the blesser to bless other people? It's also equally as beautiful. Jesus would say it's more blessed to give than to receive. But Jesus is still doing this today. He's using the body to minister to the body. And just by personal uh, testimony, we had our week of prayer and fasting, which was amazing, right? And on my prayer list for that week of prayer and fasting was asking the Lord for provision for a home. My wife and I have a desire to start a family and to buy a home in this almost impossible market, trusting that the God of the impossible is able to do it. And so we're trying to figure out all the different things, the terminology, the provision of everything. And um, Rob Nash has a prayer calendar, and I was on his prayer calendar for that day. And so all that week I'd been praying for provision, and Rob Nash says, hey, you're on my prayer calendar today. How can I pray for you? And so I share, you know, I'm trying to find wisdom. I'm trying to receive provision from the Lord spiritually, just wisdom, practically, all this different stuff. I'm, I'm having trouble like with all these different terms, FHA loan, conventional loan, Melarus, who is she, what do I have to pay her? You know, all the different things, right? And so we pray together. And in Rob Nash's prayer, he's praying for God's provision and his peace. I'm saying, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. He, he even prays a big prayer. He says, Lord, show him today that you will provide for, and just in small ways, show him that you'll provide. 
I say yes and amen. We leave my office, come to the sanctuary, and on my way to the sanctuary, I get an alert for an overdue bill (laughs) for $100. And I'm like, Lord, I'm praying for provision, right? Not more bills. And so I online pay the $100 and I sit down in our prayer circle, kind of discouraged. I'm like, Lord, this is, you know, this is counterproductive to what I think you're trying to do. And we sit in our circles and a sweet saint just had it on his heart. And he comes up to me and he kind of does the holy handshake, you know, like there's something in there, that handshake. And he says, you know, this, this is maybe a blessing from the Lord, if not just an encouragement to you. And I'm supposed to be leading the circle, right? But I'm looking at what, you know, what has he given me? And it's a check for $100. And I got to tell you, I was so blessed by that, that God would put that on someone's heart, that he would know what I'm going through, know my prayer request and answer it almost like instantly, you know? And when, when I opened that check to, to see that $100, the $100 that I forgot to pay that bill, I'll tell you this, the Holy Spirit, I just felt like he zoomed in on me and said, I see you. And I know you. And I know what, what, what's going on. I know the future. And there was just a sense of that supernatural peace, right? That peace that surpasses understanding. So I'm so thankful to witness how the body is able to bless the body, just like we see in Acts chapter 4. We see that um, there was, again, no lack or need unmet. And could you imagine being one of the recipients of someone who had nothing, right? There was a big swell in Jerusalem because the early church was beginning. So people had left their houses and come to Jerusalem to experience God, and God meets them with salvation. And so the early church had a lot of needs. And so how did God meet those needs? He put it on the hearts of the believers to sell their, their proceeds, to sell their land, their houses, and to bring all of their different things and give it to the apostles. And I just want to share a disclaimer here. Some would read this text, and I know that there's cults even here in North County, that they use this text, and they say this is the argument for communism and socialism, right? Hey, if you're going to be the church, like you got to do like the, what the church did, you got to sell everything and you got to give it to your church. And, and, and they couldn't be any more wrong. You see, communism is forced. What we see here is communism. They had all things in common. Communism is forced. Communism is voluntary. No one was enforcing the body to do this. They freely gave as they freely received. Communism says, what's yours is mine, but communism says, what's mine is yours. There was a voluntary giving of their proceeds to the body. And I, I, wanna, I want us to read these with contextual eyes, because we see in this account, in Acts chapter 4, it's not prescriptive, it's descriptive, okay? And in Scripture, there's prescriptive texts where this is what you need to do. These are commands, not suggestions. This is what you need to do. But descriptive is just, this is what's happening in the early church. And so Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is just detailing the miraculous supernatural move of people being united in heart and soul and giving of their proceeds. A next characteristic of the early church is that they had great power and witness, Look at verse 33 again. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. So they had great power and witness. It's interesting to note that this word power is the same word power that Jesus used in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, speaking of the Holy Spirit giving power. 
In Acts 1.8, you can write down that reference, Acts 1.8. Jesus says, but you shall receive power, same power, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so they waited for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is pouring out. And, and, and with great power, the apostles were able to give witness to the resurrection of Jesus. And I love this because the Holy Spirit is not someone to be manipulated for our own means, our own gain. No, the Holy Spirit is given. He gives us his power so that we can testify of Jesus, his resurrection. So as the apostles waited in prayer, the Holy Spirit gave them effective power to witness of Jesus and his resurrection. It's a good reminder for us that God's power is something that we can't generate in ourselves. It's something that we have to graciously receive in humility. And get this, the Lord loves to give the gift of the Holy Spirit to those who ask. He's a good father. In the gospel of Luke, it says, if you ask for a stone or a bread, is, he, is your father going to give you a stone? Or, or if you ask for a fish, are you going to get a serpent? So how much more does your father, who loves you, right, Will he not give you the gift of the Holy Spirit? And I love that we'll see more of the Holy Spirit moving in the book of Acts. And so I just love a reminder for us today that the pressure isn't on us to be that effective witness. The pressure really is on the Holy Spirit. As we're yielded and submitted to him, we're filled with his power then to testify not for ourselves, but to testify of Jesus in his resurrection. Amen? So they were of one heart and one soul. They had great power and witness. The last characteristic, they had great grace. End of verse 33. And great grace was upon them all. So as the body ministered to the body, as they witnessed with power the resurrection of Jesus Christ, great grace was upon them all. And we know this. Grace is that undeserved favor of God. Grace is that undeserved favor of God. Grace given by God is not just a saving grace, though the early church was experiencing that, right? Every day the Lord was adding to the church, so there was a saving grace. But they also experienced a sanctifying grace. Could you imagine being in that multitude of the 8,000? There probably had to be some selfish people in there, right? But that sanctifying grace is able to take that hard, stubborn heart and melt it so that it's pliable and usable in God's hands, so that God can speak to that heart to say, hey, don't live for yourself, live for the glory of God, and now give to others. So there was a saving grace. There is also a sanctifying grace, but also a sustaining grace. We're going to see this in the book of Acts, that God's favor is going to sustain the early church to now take the gospel to the ends of the earth, and so effectively that here we are today responding to Jesus and his resurrection. So there was a saving grace, a sanctifying grace, a sustaining grace. And I love that God's grace, if you want to do some homework, do a word study on the New Testament word grace. Because God's grace, like I said, doesn't just save us, sanctify, sustain us. It also empowers us. It empowers us to rightly walk with Jesus, to inherit all of God's promises that are yes and amen in him. God's grace is that vehicle in which we witness the miraculous. And we at Calvary Chapel, we need God's grace. Amen. And we say, Lord, I don't deserve it, but I'll take it. <laughs> and even more so, Lord, I need it. So they had one heart, one soul. They had great power, great witness. They had great grace. Let's talk about number two, the characters of the early church. 
we're introduced to this character named Barnabas. And Barnabas is such a cool character in Scripture. We see that his nickname, his real name is Joseph, or uh, other translations, your translation may say Joseph, but he was nicknamed Barnabas. So this guy was just an average Joe, you could say. Just Joe, right? But Joe was known for being an encourager. Have you guys met those people that you, you meet them, you have those conversations, and you just feel built up in your soul? That's kind of like the heart of Barnabas right there. Wherever Joe would go in the multitude of the early church, people were just being built up and edified. And, I, you know, they, I just feel encouraged by you. Tyler, Pastor Tyler is very much a Barnabas in my life that I talk with him, I pray with him. I feel encouraged when I meet with him, when I talk with him, when I pray with him. He's kind of a Barnabas in my life. And, and I love that Barnabas was just, you can say, an average Joe who was about the Lord's business. And firstly, Joe was nicknamed the son of encouragement, and he was known for encouraging firstly through his finances. We see that he was one of the guys to go back to Cyprus, sell his land, sell his belongings, and bring all the proceeds to the apostles, and the apostles distributed as they saw fit. But Barnabas first was an encouragement through finances. Later on, he would be an encouragement spiritually. He would partner up with Paul to start many churches and encourage the different churches around. And I, I, I can't wait for us to get more into Barnabas' story because he wasn't perfect. Actually, he had some drama with Paul. We'll see that later on. But God still used him, and he was, the, he was known as the son of encouragement. I just find it interesting that the apostles just saw him and his reputation like, Hey, Joe. You know what? I'm going to rename you. You're going to be a Barnabas. And, and where did they get that? Maybe they got that from Jesus, right? Who is always giving different people nicknames. The, the sons of thunder, right? Because James and John wanted to call down fire. Lord, if you want me to do it, I'll call down fire. He's like, hey, sons of thunder, right? Hey, hey just calm down. That's not my heart. Or, or even um, Peter, right? I, I, Simon, but I'm going to call you Peter, which means little stone. And on the foundation of, the, of my resurrection, I'm going to use you to help build my church, little stone man. And so maybe, you know, the apostles got that insight from Jesus. Hey, 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 Joseph over there, you're Barney now. What's up, Barney, you know, and and you're a son of encouragement. So we'll see more about Barnabas in the coming weeks as well. But we also want to look at the apostles. Apostles, that's kind of a, a foreign word in our common day language, everyday language. So I want to break down what is an apostle. We saw that the early church was selling their things and bringing it to the apostles, and the apostles were sharing it as, as, as they felt led, as there was need. They distributed to anyone who had need. But the apostles, a, a simple definition, is a messenger sent on a mission. An apostle is a messenger sent on a mission. Modern-day apostles, you can kind of see um, all around, are people who have the burden to church plant or the gift to church plant, right? They're, they're within a local church, but they have a desire to go out and preach the gospel and see a work of God somewhere else. And so modern-day apostles could be church planters. Uh, but these apostles that um, Luke is referencing are simply the 12 disciples, okay? Let's, let's do some Bible study again. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. Matthew chapter 10 verses 1 through 4. Matthew 10, 1 through 4, and when he, speaking of Jesus, had called his 12 disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. 
Now, the names of the 12 apostles, interesting there, disciples, apostles, 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Lebius, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. So when we see apostle, especially in the book of Acts, it's in reference to the 12 disciples minus Judas. So flip over again now to Acts chapter 1. So Judas is no longer part of the 12 but the early church introduces another character, and he's now referred to as a, an apostle. Acts chapter 1, verse 26, speaking of Matthias or Matthias, Acts 1, 26, and when they cast lots, the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. And so we see the apostles, they are, they're the 12 disciples minus Judas adding Matthias or Matthias, some translations would say. And these guys received the proceeds of everyone who was selling their goods. And I love the character of these apostles because they, had so easy, they, had, they could have so easily took advantage of that. They could have hoarded it for themselves. They could have manipulated that money and used it for their own kingdom, their own gain. But they were just delegators of it. They were people who were just funnels of blessing. They were loving channels. Warren Wearsby in his uh, in his definition of ministry, he says, ministry takes place when God-given resources meet human needs through loving channels to the glory of God. So God-given resources meeting human needs through loving channels to the glory of God. That's ministry, Warren Wearsby says. And so these apostles were just these loving channels. They were blessed to be a blessing. They had that mentality as, okay, I'm going to receive, but it's not, it's not belonging to me. It's going to go outwards. And so they were conduits of God's blessing. And notice that these apostles, they also witnessed of Jesus, and they shepherded the early church. So we'll see more about these apostles. And they encouraged me, because the 12 disciples, the 12 knuckleheads, right, they weren't perfect. They, they were often corrected by Jesus. And that gives me hope that I could also be used too. It should give you hope that you could be used too. That the people who were closest to Jesus in his earthly ministry, they still failed. But God still chose to use them. And what great grace was upon them as apostles. Amen? And what great grace is upon us as we so desire to follow in their footsteps and to honor Jesus in being a part of his kingdom. So we looked at the characteristics of the early church, one heart, one soul. They witnessed with power the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Great grace was upon them all. We were introduced to Barnabas and the apostles. And so what does this mean for our life? Like I said before, this text is descriptive, not prescriptive, but it still can apply to our life. The Word of God is living and active. So how might we take some of these principles that we see in the early church, and how can we answer the question, what does it look like for me to be the church in a broken world? What the Lord put on my heart in the first observation of application is this. We saw that the early church was of one soul and one heart. Reflection question for us to take a walk with is, what can we do today to be better unified with our brothers and sisters. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, I'm going to read verses 1 through 6, and then 25 to 32, about how we can maybe practically pursue unity with one another. 
Ephesians 4, 1 through 6 says this, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all loneliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, keyword, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Keyword is we need to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit. This is us saying, Lord, I want to be a part of that work of unity. And where I have sharp edges that may be offending somebody else, shave those things down so I can be better fitted to my brother and my sister for God's glory. So what might this look practically? Ephesians 4, 25 to the last part of the chapter. Therefore, putting away lying, let each of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give to give him who has need. Verse 29, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Hey, if you're going to volunteer and say, Lord, how can I pursue unity? Let's be obedient to Ephesians chapter 4. And let's be obedient in our practicality of relating to one another and forgiving one another and extending grace to one another and encouraging one another with our words. So we saw that the early church, they were unified, one heart, one soul. How might you better be unified with your brother or sister in Christ? We saw that the early church adopted a mentality that they were blessed to be a blessing. They counted everything that they had as opportunity for the gospel to go forth or for needs to be met. I'll say this. It's not bad to own things. It's bad for those things to own you. So the early church had an open hand to the things that God gave them, and they gave it back to the Lord. What a beautiful thing. Question for us, how might we be a blessing to those around us? How might we use our finances or our, 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 our resources as a means to be a blessing to other people? Like I said, I work with the young adults, right? And most of us are broke as a joke. <laughs> so they're, they're reading this passage like, how, how can I bless with, with finances when I don't have any finances? Well, here's some practical things that you can use or you can do that doesn't cost anything. You can give of your time just to be with people to hear people. You could give attention by being a listening ear to those who have things to say. You could give counsel from the word of God. As you receive your daily manna from the Lord and it blesses your heart, you can freely give that out to those who are around you. You can give with prayer support, like Rob Nash doing the prayer calendar. You can contact the person a day and say, hey, you're on my prayer calendar. How can I pray for you? How can I support you in prayer? You can give of a a shoulder to cry on, and, and, and Galatians chapter 6, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Maybe it's you slowing down to be patient with someone who is going through something and just being there. 
to be a blessing to them. Maybe you can discover your spiritual gift, have your spiritual gift be sanctified, and then use your spiritual gift in the local church context or even out in the community. What would it look like for us to all know our spiritual gifts, to de- for those gifts to be developed and then to be deployed? It'd be amazing, right? We would really be the church in a broken world. So those things don't cost anything. And so young people, there's no excuse, right? Just because you're broke is a joke. There's still things that you have that you can offer the Lord and the Lord can bless it. Another observation is that we saw that the early church gave power and effective witness of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. A question for us is, what can we do today or tomorrow to be better filled with the Holy Spirit so that we can be an effective witness for Jesus Christ? What would it look like for you to be filled with the Spirit of God? Parents, what impact might that have on you and your home? You filled with the Spirit. Employers and employees, what might it look like for you to be filled with the Spirit as you work and meet with the people in the community? Students, children, what would be the impact if you were filled with the Holy Spirit on your campuses, on your sports teams? What effect might that have on people around you? So they were effective witnesses by the power of the Holy Spirit. What might it look like for you to be filled with the Spirit? How can you better be filled by the Spirit? And we, last one, we saw that Barnabas received the nickname from the apostles and it was known as a son of encouragement. A fun question for us. If the apostles would nickname you, what would they give you? <laughs> what is your reputation? That's the son of stinginess right there, right? <laughs> or the daughter of gossip. No, no, no. Let that not be named here at Calvary Vista. Let our reputation be that where we have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into light. And even if our reputation had been that of the world, man, the truth is that now in Jesus, the old is gone and the new has come, right? We're new creations in Christ Jesus. May us, like Paul, who has had the worst reputation, right, Saul, the persecutor of Christians, then be translated to be known as a father of the early church, where Paul would say in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, right, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What is your reputation? What will the apostles nickname you? And by the grace of God, you can be, transferred from, you can be transformed from glory to glory just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So there's a lot of different observations and principles that we saw in this text I encourage you today, tomorrow, take a walk with some of those reflection questions and allow the Lord to sanctify you, to encourage you, and to challenge you. I'm going to call the worship team back up, and I'm going to tie this in into a time of communion and response and prayer. In in regards to kind of giving that we saw the early church do, they really took cues from Jesus because Paul would write in 2 Corinthians 8 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. As I tie this into communion, I'm so thankful that Jesus left the perfect place of heaven where he was one with the Father physically, right there, man. And he was born into this world to live a perfect life for you and I than to die as a substitute for us. That on the cross, he would take on the wrath of God for himself and he would cry, it is finished. 
thus signifying that we have fellowship or direct access to God the Father, both now and for eternity. And then Jesus resurrected. Jesus, who was rich, he became poor for our sakes, that through his poverty we might become rich. Not talking about physically, like mene, mene, mene. Spiritually, that we would walk in what Jesus said, I have come to give life and that more abundant. True life is found because Jesus loves you. True life is given to us to walk in because of the finished work of Jesus on the cross. As we take communion, it's going to be on the tables right here to my left and to my right. The bread represents his body that was bruised and broken on our behalf. It speaks of him bearing the weight of the wrath of God in his own body for us, that by his stripes we would be healed. And then the cup, the juice, represents his blood, his blood that sanctifies us, his blood that allows us to stand righteous before him by grace alone, through faith alone. It's the blood of Jesus Christ that is renewing our minds and renewing our hearts that we are looking more and more like Jesus at the end of every day. So we're going to celebrate. We're going to respond in communion. And so as you feel led after I pray, go ahead and partake of the cup. If you know that you're not in a right relationship with the Lord, it's a great time to pause, to repent, and just say, Lord, I'm sorry. And turn from your wicked ways and ask the Lord for healing and direction on how to walk rightly with him. And forgiveness is available to you. Freedom is available to you as we cry out to Jesus. And then we'll end with some prayer people on the side that if there's a need, like the early church had needs, if you have a need, let's pray for those needs to see if the Lord would miraculously provide. And uh, let's see what God will do. Amen? Amen. Father, we ask for your blessing upon us. Thank you, Jesus, that that you love us. Lord, thank you that you left the perfect place of heaven to come to be with us. And Lord, we know that in your resurrection, you're there and back in heaven preparing a place for us. And we can't wait to see you, Lord. But until then, help us to be the church in a broken world. We look to you, your love, your sacrifice on the cross as a source of encouragement and strength to point us in the right direction. Oh, Lord, we confess that we need you. Like we sing before, Lord, you can have it all. And if there's places where we're holding on to, would you by your spirit patiently open up our hands so that we can walk in that surrender and abundance of life that you so want to give us. Thank you, Jesus, for you. In this time, Lord, we celebrate you. We remember you. We thank you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.